Surely the earth can be saved by all the people who insist on love? Alice Walker. It's not the law of religion, nor the principles of morality that define our highways and pathways to God. Only by the grace of God are we led and drawn to God. It is His grace that conquers a multitude of flaws, and in that grace, there's only favor. Favor is not achieved, favor is received. See Joy Bell. If man had his way, the plan of redemption would be an endless and bloody conflict. In reality, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ our Lord surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. A.W. Tozer. If the church is to survive as a place where head and heart are equal partners in faith, then we will need to commit ourselves once again, not to the worship of Christ, but to the imitation of Jesus. His imitation was not to believe, but to follow. Robin R. Myers. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The work of salvation in its full sense is about human beings, not merely souls, about the present, not simply the future, and about what God has done through us, not merely what God does in and for us. N.T. Wright. I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in the right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear and there's no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness, and at the same time, an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. Brennan Manning. Salvation has come to this house today. Jesus, Luke 19.9. So it was the 90s, I was 12 years old, and my parents, uh, who like rediscovered their faith in this church that we were at, uh, took us to this play that was making its way through a number of our churches where I grew up in Southern Ontario. We were there for like the opening night, the closing nights, and all the nights in between. And the name of the play was Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, right? Maybe you've heard of it. And the gist of it was to, it compared the personal stories of people who lived and died, where they went after they died, and why they went where they went. So, 12 years old, four nights of death, heaven, and hell. What better could one ask for, for a week? Um, But throughout that week, something happened to me. And something happened in me. Something took root in my heart and soul and mind is how how I understood God to be that caused me to get saved over and over and over again. Maybe you've had this experience before. 
Now, I had gotten saved in the back stairwell uh, after Sunday school one morning when I was like five years old. So I understood conceptually, even at a young age, of like this Jesus thing, this God thing is good. But something changed during this week of heaven's gates and hell's flames. Something took over and took root that caused me to get saved over and over and over again, to give my heart to Jesus over and over and over again, and to respond to every altar call each and every night over and over and over and over again, every night, and what took root in my heart was fear. The fear of a God who is angry at me. The fear of a God who hates. The fear of a God who hates sin. The fear of a God who hates what is evil. And the fear of a God who would create and stoke and keep going the nature of and the place of eternal conscious torment called hell. Many of us have had this experience growing up in church or religious environments where um, the coercion of fear and the need to be saved from punishment is the primary factor, is the, is the litmus test or the impetus on why we come to Jesus in the first place. Not so much the, the compelling vision of the rescuing, redeeming, regenerating move of God of grace in the spirit through the love of Christ, but through Fear, And I would contend today, and I wish I knew back then, that this is a lie. This is not what the meta-narrative of Scripture teaches. It's certainly not what the New Testament adheres to. And it is not what Jesus affirmed in his gospel ministry of rescuing and reconciliation. And so, my friends, as we begin this new series today, let me ask us, what does Jesus save us from? What does Jesus save? save us from. I'd invite you to take 15 or 20 seconds to close your eyes and even just like what concept, what does that conjure up, that image in your mind when you talk about Jesus saves me from or you think about Jesus saves me from or you try and answer that ellipsis, Jesus saves me from dot, dot, dot. What are the mental pictures, those religious memories, those memories of growing up, what is conjured up in you? What does Jesus save us from? This is the heart of what is behind this new series called Churchianity, which is our November series uh, about the real challenge of what it means to be a more Christ-like Christian as opposed to somebody who just attends a church or somebody who, um, you know, is a member of a religious body or somebody who just, you know, glibly, blindly, or even with their whole heart believes that maybe Christianity is like the right religion to be a part of. Um, and we get it twisted. The, the confusion and uh, confusion and fog of church mixed with the religious ideology and institution of Christianity that sometimes compels us to be nothing like the founder and the person of Jesus. And so so these are the questions that we want to address and talk through in very simple New Testament stories, the teaching, familiar teaching of Jesus to understand tonight, today, or this morning, depending on where you're watching from and when. What does Jesus save me from? Uh, Week two, what, like, does Jesus just want me at a church on Sunday, or is there something more? Week three, are there people that Jesus invites me to dislike, or are there trends or cultural realities that Jesus wants me to avoid? And then week four, what does faith 
mean? What does, like, where does Jesus live? Is it in my heart, like in one of the chambers in the aorta? Like, what does faith actually look like? Now, I'll invite you wherever you're at, whether at one of our sites or here in the room tonight, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to be walking through uh, verses 1 to 10. It's a very, very familiar story, uh, Zacchaeus and Jesus, the story of Zacchaeus. Now, I remember learning about this in actually one of those Sunday school classes, and one of my core memories is this like Scottish uh, gentleman who sometimes subbed in for Sunday school lessons, and he would always start, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, but enough of that. Um, but he was a wee little man. So shout out to those short kings and queens. I see you. Sort of I'm trying to see you. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. I hear you. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass through and pass by that way. But when Jesus came by, he looked at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quickly come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Yo, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus quickly climbed down the tree and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. Notice there, not with judgment and fear, not the coercion of punishment, but with great excitement and joy. But the people were greatly displeased. The people who are witnessing this are greatly displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. He deserves punishment. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham or descendant of, um, of Israel. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now this is a fascinating, fascinating text that um, many of us heard growing up in Sunday school or in church lessons or on like church felt boards of like Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the wee little man was he, he climbed atop a sycamore tree just to see what he could see. But there's a lot going on even in the first two sentences. First of all, the word Zacchaeus means one who is righteous and innocent, redeemed by God. Okay. So as a good Jewish boy or girl, hearing the retelling of the story, right away, be like, that's the guy's name? Like, how did that guy with that name, that title, that lineage get mixed up in that line of work as a chief tax collector. Now, even further, I mean, Luke is amping up this gospel uh, story, the story of somebody who is so outside of the religious economy of acceptance at the time in every aspect of life, both in Roman life and the imperial cult, in Jewish life, and in eventually this new messianic way. So you have Zacchaeus, righteous and innocent, uh, who is anything but those things. He's a chief tax collector in a customs town called Jericho. Okay, so a chief tax collector 
Tax collectors were notorious to overtax their own people. They represented, they were kind of intermediaries between the political establishment and their own religious culture and traditions. And so Zacchaeus is um, the arbitrator of taxation between the Romans or the governors, the government and power of the time, and the Jewish Israelite people. And tax collectors on their own, even in local regions, were known to be crooks. They were a mix of like, um, like used car salesmen and politicians at the time. There was nothing to be trusted there. Now, Zacchaeus is a chief. Do you notice what the text says? Is a chief tax collector. Most scholars would say as a chief tax collector is one who governs over, similar to um, the story of Cornelius. He has quite a lot of people under his employ. And as that scenario goes, not only is that person stealing and that person and that person and that person, but it funnels up to just a, a deep level of sin and hip- hypocrisy of theft and brokenness against your own people. And so chief tax collectors outside the Bible, there's wonderful, well, it's not wonderful, it's terrible uh, religious um, history that, that you can read outside of the Bible of a few chief tax collectors that were executed in particular for stealing um, 10, 20, 30 times the amount from their own people and were found out, judged, and executed by their own people. Zacchaeus, righteous and innocent, is a chief tax collector stealing all the way up, not serving his own people, raining down judgment and debt on people that can't afford to live in Jericho. Now, Jericho was northeast of Jerusalem, and Jesus makes a point to go there. Uh, Most scholars agree that Jericho is an oasis town. It is where the rich, wealthy, and powerful, the political leaders of the day, lived. They did not live in Jerusalem. They wanted some distance from a religion. They certainly didn't live in Samaria nor nor Galilee, um, where the enemies or the country bumpkins were. Jericho was like the spot where you had your vacation home. And because of that, the poor and sick, if they were able, would make their way to the entrance and the exits of the city gates of Jericho in order um, to, to get hands out in the hopes of a handout or help from the powerful. And so even Jesus, just before uh, chapter 19, he heals a beggar who is on his way to, Jer- uh, to Jericho. So Zacchaeus, the innocent and righteous chief tax collector, purveyor of debt, stealer from his own people, living in Jericho, the oasis city for the rich and the famous, the the pusher outer of the poor um, and helpless and marginalized. Not only is he collecting and stealing from his own, he's employing a whole bunch of people who are doing the same thing. By virtue of his position, both physically in the city and his position, his occupation, he is entirely separate from the physical and spiritual work of God that the law has spelled out for him to to be, to not um, be indebted to people nor people to him. Zacchaeus has sidestepped everything that the law has laid out for him to do. And he can't see Jesus. Now, I think this is the brilliance of the writing of scripture in the book of Luke. Luke puts this story, it's actually the only um, uh, instance in the gospel where this story occurs. Now, do you uh, notice what happens with Zacchaeus? So he's a person of power, but Luke makes mention of his height, right? His stature is actually the key rendering. This is a short man. So already Luke is making a dig that like this guy is so big and powerful, but he can't even see. And then he has trouble seeing through the crowds to the people. 
Luke is giving a, a, an amazing word picture here that a rich and powerful man is now just as short and just as blind, just as behind and outside of the city as these poor people are. Zacchaeus is now stepped out from his place of power and is at the same level of all those people that are lined up at the city gates looking for a handout. He cannot see the Christ. He cannot see the work of God. And so what does he do? He climbs a tree. This is one of um, the key metaphors that not just Jesus, but Yahweh uses to signify the family of God, roots and branches that go deep and grow out, that birds, even foreigners, can park their spots in and be included in the care of God. And so Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus, to see what is going on here. And Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus. That should arrest us right there. Zacchaeus, uh, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, righteous and innocent one. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down, for I am confronting you in your sin. You are in danger of hellfire. No, this is not what he says. Quick, Zacchaeus, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, in Eastern hospitality, what does it mean to be a guest in one's home? This isn't a coffee or a tea or like watching Netflix and chatting about it. This is a day, days, week, weekend long exchange where you would put somebody up in your own, own home. You would cook and care and clean for them. And Jesus, the savior of the world, the personification of the divine, the incarnate deity invites himself into the home of somebody who is completely physically, holistically, spiritually separate from the move and work of God. Zacchaeus, come down. I must be a guest in your home. And Zacchaeus does exactly that. No questions asked. He quickly comes down. He climbs down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. I can't believe, despite all that I've done, I know who this person is, the miracles that he's done, the people that he has healed on the way. He goes to his home with Jesus in tow. I envision Zacchaeus with his tiny little short legs, like running ahead of me. Like, it's just this way, just a few more steps, a few more steps. But look at the religious mind here. The people were greatly displeased. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sin sinner, and they grumbled. In other words, this dude deserves punishment. Because of the sin and harm that Zacchaeus has caused the people, uh, he deserves judgment. But what happens with Jesus despite the sin and harm that Zacchaeus has caused the people, he's met with what is wrong immediately as you continue the story. He, he offers payback to Jesus right away and he repents. Now it's interesting, Zacchaeus isn't just arbitrarily coming up with these things to do. Um, uh, he says, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much, which is exactly what the law required for people who stole or were carrying debt over the other. If you carry debt and you do not release them after a certain time period, you must pay back not just the amount and interest, but four times the amount. Jesus' presence with Zacchaeus just forms him back into the will and the way of God by design as part of this family. And Zacchaeus holds nothing back. 
if I have cheated people, which he has, I will give half of my wealth, which he's incurred from the poor, not to the wealthy, not reinvest it, not put it in a GIC or a savings bond. I will give my wealth, half my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, which he has, I will give them back four times as much just as the law required. And Jesus responds, salvation has come to this home today for This man has shown himself to be a true descendant of the family or son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now it's fascinating, Jesus uses a double word play here. The translation of the word Jesus um, uh, means uh, he, he will say God who saves, God who saves, right? And Jesus uses the feminine version of his own name here in the place of that word salvation. He is literally saying salvation in myself has come to this home today. This man has shown himself to be willing to come back to the way of God for the son of man, Jesus' own divine title for himself, has come to seek and save the lost. No mention of hell here. No mention of eternal punishment, no mention of God's wrath, no mention of retribution or some intermediary state of punishment. The work of Jesus is, in, is initiated by Jesus in Zacchaeus' life. It's initiated by Jesus through love, connection, and correction, and not coercion. Jesus initiates this beginning step of relational and spiritual healing and rescue, which is the formative mission uh, and meta-narrative of the gospel that Jesus walks through in each of these synoptic gospels. So then, what does Jesus save us from? We see it here, Jesus saves us from sin and separation. Sin and separation. Augustine of Hippo puts it like this, that sin is the inward state and habit of the soul that transgresses or leads away from God and leads us away from others. I'm gonna say that again. Sin is the inward state and habit of the soul or inner world that transgresses, leads away from God and leads us away from others. What are the two greatest commands that Jesus categorizes of his ministry? Love, love, God with all your, your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor, others, enemies, Romans, Greeks, Zacchaeuses, as you would yourself. Sin is the, is, the, is the converse of that. Sin is whatever leads you away from God and leads you away from God's people, Augustine of Hippo. And Jesus saves us from the fog of the habit of sin that moves us away from the love of God and of our love for each other. And then separation Jesus saves us from sin and separation from himself and from each other. Um, I was reading an N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright is a wonderful New Testament scholar and historian. He did an interview a few years back with the BBC about his experience his first time um, being at a church service at the Sistine Chapel. And he writes that he was sitting behind, b- beside a, a Greek Orthodox priest who pointed at um, the depiction of like uh, Heaven, Jesus is the inter- intermediary, and then the underworld or hell that's depicted in the Sistine Chapel. And this Greek Orthodox priest points at it and says, this I get pointing at heaven, this I get pointing at Jesus, this I don't. This is a generative idea of a Western meta- mentality of a God that is angry and looking for retribution. And this is in particular born out of a Western ideology and not out of the East. And so out of that experience, um, N.T. Wright comments that the meta narrative of Scripture does not use punishment and eternal conscious torment to describe eternity apart from God, he says, but rather separation. 
That is the long path of dehumanizing the conscious and habitual choice of going one's own way and not the way of God formed in every human. And at the end of one's life, God honors that choice of those that depart from it and the separation by their own choice becomes final. And this, I would contend, is what Jesus is saving us from from being separate from the will and the way of God. Jesus saves us from sin and separation. Okay, so let's name the elephant in the room. What about hell? What about hell? Maybe you've come from a tradition um, where like it's part and parcel. God is holy and can't be anywhere near sin and therefore out of his justice is born this eternal conscious fiery uh, torture chamber that, that will deal with the lost and the perishing and the sinful forever. Um, I would contend that this is not what the New Testament teaches. In particular, it's not what Jesus teaches. I read one scholar, actually I heard one uh, pastor speak on this a few years back who said, Jesus talked more about hell than anything else. And this is a lie. Jesus taught about hell in particular, and it's not even that word, six or seven times, exclusively to religious people who thought they had it right, and zero times to people who were genuinely lost. So that just stop us in our tracks right away. The word translated hell is actually the word Gehenna, which in ancient Israelite history was the Valley of Ben Hinnom, which was um, a death valley where people would sacrifice their firstborn sons to the god Molech in hopes that they would that that the god Molech would not punish them. And then a couple of the kings in Jerusalem, uh, the kings of Israel, said, "No, like that is not the way this." should be. This does not seem uh, to be indicative of who and how God is. But then as you fast forward to the time of Jesus, Gehenna, uh, which is the um, Greek translation of this dump, continued. It was still a valley outside of the gates of Jerusalem, where if you um, died or were executed and you weren't part of any family lineage, like you weren't buried or prepared, your body wasn't prepared by your family. So typically sick, poor, um, slaves or those who were executed were dumped in Gehenna. And the kind of description of this dump was the place where uh, the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. And so Jesus uses that as hyperbolic analogy to point to a greater spiritual reality. Is Jesus saying there is a place that exists that I have created in my heart of love, of eternal conscious torment, where anybody who departs from me will go and burn forever? No, no. Is Jesus saying, if, if you are not walking in the will and the way of God, if you're not departing from sin and separation, uh, you, you are in danger of just like walking yourself outside of the city gates, walking yourself outside of the will, the way, the ethic, the care, and the concern, and the love of God. And it's your choice. You have agency that it's, Second uh, Peter um, puts it this way, it's, it's not God's will that any man should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of of Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what about hell? Does God, has God created a place filled with fire where it never goes out and can't wait to punish people who depart from him? No. God gives agency and separation. I heard it put um, by a, another uh, well-known New Testament scholar who, who said, uh, hell is what people make of it. We, we create hell on earth and hell is where we head when we depart from God that, that um, culminates in just separation. So for those people who say, uh, as N.T. Wright puts here, um, 
No, I'm making a conscious choice for my whole life to do it my way. Thank you, God, but I'm good. God honors that choice, and this life is all that there is. In the end, the fire that consumes, consumes the soul and the person, and that person ceases to exist. Now, I will invite you to, we also have a podcast called The Beating House Common Room, and uh, in the next couple days, we'll we'll be talking about hell, hades, and the hereafter, but I wanted to name that right out of the gate. What about hell? Okay, so Jesus saves us from sin and separation. What does Jesus save us through? For many of us in our Christian upbringing or in our religious context, we stop there. What does Jesus save us from? Like, what's the insurance ticket that I have? What's the plane ticket out of here somewhere else that's better so I don't have to deal with it? And we forget about the other two aspects Jesus saves us from, but then Jesus also saves us through, and then Jesus saves us to. So what does Jesus save us through? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the free gift of God, not a result of works that you can brag or boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So what does Jesus save us through? Grace through faith. Grace, the unmerited favor and acceptance from the heart of God and faith, the intimacy and relationship initiated by God in Jesus. Amazing, beautiful. And Laura's gonna be taking us through like, so what is faith? How does that relationship work at the end of our series on faith? And then Jesus saves us too. What does Jesus save us from? How does Jesus save us through? And then what does Jesus save us to? I would contend that Jesus saves us to wholeness and communion. Wholeness and communion. Wholeness being fully loved and fully human, that we were created with intent. That at the beginning of this story of like the, the breath that fills our nostrils from the breath of God, we were created out of joy and creativity, not as broken, disgusting, disabled uh, vessels who, by the grace of God, is the only way that we are saved, but we are created uh, uh, through joy, out of the passionate love of God that looks at his creation, humans included, and says, this is good. This is so good. Wholeness, being fully loved and fully human that our bodies, God is restoring, regenerating, reconstituting and rescuing. And that we are put on this earth to do good work, which God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in these good works, wholeness, being fully loved and fully human, and then communion, being fully accepted and intimately connected to the divine through Jesus. Communion, we're fully accepted and intimately connected. This is the invitation of salvation to be connected to eternally, eternally, here and there, to the divine heart of God and Jesus. And this is what Jesus is calling Zacchaeus back to in Luke chapter 19, to repentance, certainly, to a changing of mind, to metanoia, change the way you think, and then to shuva, change the way that you act, and reforming of who he is and how he's living. And Zacchaeus does not skip a beat, says, I've seen the risen, the, the, the incarnate deity of the Messiah here and now, I'm willing to change my life. Jesus has spent time 
time with me, I'm going to reorient how I order my day. Zacchaeus knows immediately he doesn't need to read more books, spend more time journaling, talk to New Testament scholars. He knows how he's living is harming himself and harming others. He turns away, turns around. No longer is his vision of God or others blurry. He's living and returning to the good work God created long ago for him to be a part of. And then what does Jesus invite himself into? Okay, you got it. See you later. I got to be on my way. No, Jesus stays in intimate fellowship. He dines with Zacchaeus. Oh, I love that. Jesus stays for supper. He dines with Zacchaeus. He sees him, his kid, Zacchaeus, despite all this baggage and brokenness, the weight of sin, he sees him as, how, as he was meant to be, as he was designed to be good loved, accepted. Jesus stays. He makes fellowship and communion with him. And he announces that salvation has come to his home. No sinner's prayer, no connect card filled out, no baptism, no raising your hand with every eye closed, no altar call, no heaven's gates, no hell's flame play, just presence, communion, dinner with him. And Jesus announces that salvation has made its way into the home of Zacchaeus and everything has changed. My friends, this is what I would contend is the salvation work of Jesus. We are invited to do the same, to turn away from what's physically, emotionally, and spiritually killing us and blurring our vision of Jesus, of getting us lost in the crowd, not being able to see the Messiah that wants to change our lives, that Jesus wants to turn us towards his will and way of being wholly loved and intimately connected and Jesus communes and connects with us there, wherever you're at, wherever you're at. This is the summary of Jesus' teaching, that we're made to love God and love others. This is the whole of the law and what the prophets uh, pointed to and what Jesus saves us to, that we are literally rescued by God, our hurt being healed, our separateness moving to connection with the divine and the lost being found as loved as God's kid, eternally part of the family. And it's our choice to enter and to invite Jesus in to fellowship. So friends, what does Jesus save us from? Jesus saves us from sin and separation. Jesus saves us through grace, through faith, which is a gift from God. And Jesus saves us to wholeness and intimacy with the divine. Incredible, incredible. So my friends, when you find yourself struggling to see God through the fog of sin or through the heavy weight of religious baggage, may you hear the voice of Jesus saying, you're forgiven, I'm here, walk with me, follow me. Or when you find yourself gripped with the fear of eternal fate, asking where your eternal destiny may be, may you know and experience the saving love of Jesus that casts out that fear and has rescued and restored you in this life and for the life to come. And maybe when you're asking yourself, how could Jesus save me though? May you be met with the hope of just how beautifully made, wonderfully loved and radically accepted you are in Jesus. Saved by him that salvation has, will and continues to come to your home in Jesus. And together we all said, amen. Amen. Amen.